order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Mr. Alan Brown. The Prime Minister. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, I know that the whole House would like to join me in sending our deepest condolences to the families of those who were killed in the horrific attack at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh on Saturday. The UK stands shoulder to shoulder with our Jewish friends across the world. Mr Speaker, this is the last Prime Minister's questions before Armistice Day. This year is particularly poignant as it marks 100 years since the end of the First World War. It is right that we remember all those who have served and continue to serve, those who have been injured and those who have given their lives in the service of this country. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Alan Brown. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Obviously, I concur with the condolences about the, the horrific massacre and those who have served in the armed forces. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mr Speaker, my Italian born constituent, Laura Nani, she's resided here since 1984, attended school here, has, has had two children, and a Brit- she's got a British mother. And yet the DUP, uh, DWP have just decided she does not have a right to reside. Now, this is partly because she cannot prove of five, five years of continuous work, a situation many EU nationals, including my wife, will find ourselves in when they form apply for settled status. So what message does she have for Laura, for my wife and other EU nationals that face rejection from this heartless UK government? to the Honourable Gentleman that EU nationals do not face rejection by this government. We have, we, we have been very clear about our commitment to protect the rights of EU nationals who are living here in the United Kingdom when we leave the European Union. Mr Mark Harper. Much, Mr Speaker. Can I welcome what my right honourable friend said about Armistice Day? That will be welcomed by the 1st Battalion, the Rifles, who are based in my constituency. The Prime Minister will know that the tax burden is approaching a 50-year high and that you don't make uh, families help them with the cost of living by raising their taxes. So I'm really pleased we kept our promise to cut taxes for 32 million people. As the economy grows, can I ask my right honourable friend to make sure that we both continue to cut taxes and spend money on our priorities in the balanced way that works for everyone in our country? I thank my right honourable friend and, and say to him, of course, he's absolutely right. The budget did cut taxes for 32 million people, uh, and the rise in the personal allowance will leave a basic rate taxpayer over £1,200 better off next year than in 2010. But in helping people with the cost of living, it's not just those income tax cuts. The rise in the national living wage next year will give a full-time worker an extra £2,750 in annual pay since its introduction. And of course, by freezing fuel duty, we've saved the average driver £1,000 compared to pre-2010 plans. And we will continue to help people with the cost of living with our balanced approach to the economy. Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I join with the Prime Minister in sending our sympathies and our solidarity to the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. The the attack was disgusting, depraved and appalling, and I'm sure every single member of this House would completely and unreservedly condemn it for what it is. 
I will also be joining the Prime Minister to commemorate Armistice Day and remember all those that lost their lives in the First World War and indeed all the other wars since. Mr Speaker, if I were a prison governor, a local authority chief executive or a head teacher, I would struggle to find much to celebrate in the budget. I would be preparing for more difficult years ahead. Does the Prime Minister think that analysis is wrong? I say to the right honourable gentleman that actually if you look at what we set out in the budget, we set out more money for schools, we set out more money for uh, prisons, we set out more money for yeah, more money for prisons. We have what we have set out in the budget is that austerity is indeed ending. And what is Ending austerity, ending austerity is about continuing to bring debt down and put more into our public services, and we'll set out our further details in the spending review. But ending, ending, um, ending austerity isn't just about putting more into public services. It's about putting more money into people's pockets, as my right honourable friend has just made clear. What we're doing in this budget is giving the NHS the biggest cash boost in its history. The Right Honourable Gentleman used to ask me what taxes will go up to fund the rise in funding for the NHS. The answer on Monday, it's fully funded without putting up taxes. Jeremy Corbyn! Just for the record, the words that I quoted were from the Institute of Fiscal Studies. Non-protected, non Non-protected departments face a real terms cut of 4.1 billion. The Prime Minister promised austerity was over. The reality is it was a broken promise budget and she knows it. With violent crime rising, police numbers slashed and conviction rates down, why did the government fail to find a single penny for neighbourhood policing in the budget? Can I, say to the, uh, can I say to the right honourable gentleman, first of all, we did put extra money into CT policing in the budget. That was, that was on, top, on top of the £460 million pounds, uh, that has been made extra that's been made available for policing in this year. That is in sharp contrast to what Labour was saying at the 2015 election when they said the police should take 10% cuts in their budget. Jeremy Corbyn. Mr Speaker, this is just another example of the contempt in which the government holds police officers. Who said that? Not me, the Police Federation. No wonder the Police Federation and police chiefs are taking the government to court over their pay. Mr Speaker, with school funding cut by 8% per pupil, does the Prime Minister and her Chancellor think the little extras are enough to end austerity in our schools? Can I say to the right honourable gentleman, what we actually see happening, as I said earlier, is more money announced in the budget for schools. That's on top of the 1.4 billion. On top on top of the £1.4 billion extra that's already been announced for schools this year, and there'll be a further £1.2 billion going into schools next year. And actually he's wrong, because overall per-pupil funding is being protected in real terms by this 
by this government. What do we see in the budget? We're ending austerity, we're bringing debt down, we're putting more money into our public services. We're taking the country forward. What would he do? His policy would mean borrowing more, taxing more and wasting more and taking us back to square one. Many schools, including mine, have had to resort to asking students and their parents for funds. Not me, Sasha, a parent worried about the future of her school, because this broken promise budget means that head teachers will still be writing begging letters to parents. And can the Prime Minister explain why she chose not to end the benefit freeze for 10 million households, but instead brought forward a tax cut for higher earners? I say, actually, as the right honourable gentleman knows, we have put extra money into universal credit in the budget. What we see, what we see importantly, is universal credit being a welfare reform that ensures that people are encouraged to get into the workplace, and when they are there, they are earn more. But I'm interested that the right honourable gentleman chose to raise the question of tax cuts. On Monday, on Monday, he said putting, he said that cutting taxes for 32 million people was frittering money away on ideological tax cuts. Yesterday, yesterday, the Shadow Chancellor said Labour would support the tax cuts. On, um, on, Monday, on Monday, the Right Honourable Gentleman, the Leader of the Opposition, talked about tax cuts for the rich. Yesterday, his Shadow Chancellor said what we've always known, that the tax cuts were for middle earners, head teachers and people like that. So when the Right Honourable Gentleman stands up, perhaps he can tell the House whether he will back the tax cuts and vote for the budget. Are you done yet? Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, the order, it doesn't matter, I've got all the time in the world, it will take as long as it takes. The Right Honourable Gentleman will address a House that has the manners to listen, and the same goes when the Prime Minister is speaking. There will be a decent display of respect, and we will go on for as long as necessary as the public would expect to ensure that that's the way we operate. That is all there is to it. Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The benefit freeze takes 1.5... If you'll wait a moment, I'll explain what I might... Order, Mr Hans, calm yourself, young man. You're getting a little overexcited. I know you've already asked a question. You blurted it out to the best of your ability and we're most indebted to you. But now is the time to keep quiet. Jeremy Corbyn. Mr Speaker, the benefit freeze takes £1.5 billion from 10 million low- and middle-income households. A low-income couple with children will be £200 worse off. For them, there is no end to austerity. Labour would have ended the benefit freeze. And as she well knows, Labour policy is to raise taxes for the top 5% and for the biggest corporations in the country. That would be a fair way of dealing with financial issues facing this country. 
and can the prime minister and can the prime minister confirm will she kindly confirm there is still another 5 billion of cuts to social security to come in this parliament if it lasts till 2022 hitting the incomes of those with the least will she confirm that yes or no can I say to the right honourable gentleman that, of course, what he fails to mention from the budget is that as a result of the changes we've made on universal credit, 2.4 million people will benefit by £630 a year. And when he talks about helping those, helping those who are on low incomes, yes, we're helping people who are on low incomes. We're saving people money by freezing fuel duty. That's been opposed by the Labour Party. We're letting people keep more of the, tax, of the money they earn by cutting income tax. That's been opposed by the Labour Party. The right honourable gentleman keeps claiming that he's backing working people. But I say to him again, if he wants to put more money into people's pockets, if he wants to take care of working people, he should vote for the Conservative budget on Thursday. I'm really not very clear whether that was a yes or a no, Mr Speaker. <coughs> The Prime Minister once claimed to be concerned about burning injustices. Well, that concern's fizzled out well, hasn't it? <laughs> this was, Mr Speaker, a broken promise budget. The Prime Minister pledged to end austerity at her party conference and the Chancellor failed to deliver it in this House. The cuts continue. Those on lower incomes will be worse off as a result of this budget. Austerity has failed and needs to end now. <clears throat> Mr Speaker, it's very clear. Only Labour can be trusted to end austerity and end the cuts to those on lowest incomes and invest in our country again. So now we know councils, schools, police, prisons... Order, order. Members can shout as long and as loudly as they like. The order, and if they feel that they want to indulge themselves doing that, so be it. The right honourable gentleman's question will be heard. Well, yes, when it comes, it will be heard in full. So don't waste your breath and damage your voices. Jeremy Corbyn. Mr Speaker, I'm sure some of the members opposite won't have heard what I was saying at the end, so I'll repeat it for their benefit. So now we know councils, schools, police, prisons, public sector workers and those reliant on social security will face years of austerity. Will she apologise apologise for her broken promise that she was going to end austerity because she has failed to do that? First of all, the right honourable gentleman talked about my commitment to tackling burning injustices. Yes. Oh, yes, they say from the front bench opposite. Indeed. Was it Labour that introduced the Modern Slavery Act? No, it was me. Was it Labour that made sure that people in mental health crisis were not being taken to police cells as a place of safety? No, it was me. Was it the Labour Party 
Was it the Labour Party that introduced the race disparity audit? So for the first time we can see what's happening to people from across our communities in this country. No, it was me and this government. And I'll tell him what else this government has done. I'll tell him what else this government has done. By taking a balanced approach to the economy, careful financial management, what do we see? Borrowing down, unemployment down, income tax down. Oh, up they say. Well, I'll tell them. Oh, I'll tell them what's gone up. Support, support for. Oh dear, oh dear. I said that the right honourable gentleman must be heard. The reply from the prime minister must be heard. The prime minister. The Labour, the Labour benches want to know what's gone up. I'll tell them what's gone up. Support. As long as it takes, I'm going to tell you. Support for public services up. Growth up. Wages up. Falling, austerity is ending. Under the Conservatives, the hard work of the British people is paying off. Robert Halfham! Robert Halfham! Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Click, Click Sergeant, a wonderful cancer charity for children, has found that families in Harlow face a 54-mile round trip to get to their nearest treatment and are costing them up to £161.58 per month. Average families taking their children for cancer treatment are paying £180 per month. Given the huge £20 billion increase to the NHS budget, would my honourable friend meet with me and Click Sergeant and introduce a young cancer travel fund to help these families with the cost of living? Well, can I uh, thank my right honourable friend for his question? He raises a very important issue, and obviously our thoughts are with those children and their families. It must be a really difficult time for both the children and their families, and we do continue to look at what we can do to help them. I believe that when he talks about children from his constituency going to uh, the nearest specialist treatment centre, that is Great Ormond Street, which does wonderful work in this country for children. We do have a healthcare travel cost scheme that does allow patients to receive a reimbursement for their travel costs if they're in receipt of a qualifying benefit on a low income. But we absolutely recognise there's more to do, particularly for the cost of living for cancer patients, including children and young people, as my right honourable friend has raised. And I know that the relevant minister from the Department for Health and Social Security will be very pleased to meet with him and the charity to discuss this further. Ian Blackford. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I associate myself with the remarks from the Prime Minister regarding the Tree of Life massacre and, of course, on Armistice Day? Mr Speaker, can the Prime Minister guarantee the supply of medicines to the NHS in the light of a no-deal Brexit? To the right honourable gentleman. First of all, as he knows, we are working for a good deal uh, for Brexit, and as he will also know, that all departments, and indeed we have issued technical notices to businesses and others, are making contingency arrangements should a no deal occur. Ian Blackford. Well, of course, Mr. Speaker, that was no answer to the question that can the Prime Minister guarantee the supply of medicines in the light of the no deal? Mr. Speaker, why did this government last week? quietly begin 
a dramatically truncated tender process to try and stockpile medicines at a cost of tens of millions of pounds. Funds that should be spent on frontline health services. The Prime Minister has only been concerned about how Brexit might harm the Conservative Party. It is time that the Prime Minister woke up to the real harm her Brexit policies could cause to patients. Prime Minister, isn't it the truth that this government is in a blind panic trying to cover up for a blind Brexit? No. Can I just say to the right honourable gentleman, first of, first of all, First of all, if he had been uh, listening and paying attention over the last months, he would have known that actually in the budget last year, the Chancellor made clear that there was money available for no-deal planning. We stepped up the no-deal planning in the summer. Departments like the DHSC are ensuring that they're making the responsible contingency decisions that any government department would make. What we are doing is working for a good deal in Brexit, and we're working for a good deal that will benefit the whole of the United Kingdom, including Scotland. Peter Boone! Uh, Mr Speaker, I always thought the Chancellor was a bit iffy about Brexit, but how wrong I was, sir. This week he announced a Brexit dividend budget if we come out of the European Union with no deal. He will be able to uh, cut tariffs, um, abolish VAT on certain products and reallocate the £39 billion that he was going to give to the EU in this cut to this country, cutting taxes, improving public services and lowering debt. Prime Minister, I always thought that you could be the Queen of Brexit, but did you ever think the Chancellor could be the King of Brexit? I say, can I can I say to my honourable friend that I'm I'm pleased to see I'm pleased to see the support my honourable friend shows for the Chancellor. What the Chancellor delivered this week was a budget that is good for people up and down this country, and we should all be celebrating that. The Pierce. In 2014, I wrote to HMRC and the then Chancellor to ask how much tax was unpaid on letting in income from private landlords. And they wrote back to me and said it was 500 million in their estimate, which is enough to build around 7,000 social homes. How much is that tax gap now? Yeah. Yeah. Well, can I say to the Honourable Lady that in overall terms we have been closing the tax gap uh, over, the, uh, over the years. As I think the Right, my right honourable friend, the Chancellor, said in his budget on uh, Monday, since 2010, we've actually, through the work we've been doing to close the tax cut, to ensure that we deal with uh, tax evasion and avoidance, we've collected £185 billion or protected £185 billion of revenue for the government. Steve Double. Mr. Speaker, it's 47 years ago this week that the uh, UK's last space launch took place through the Black Arrow project. 
Many of us feel that's too long. With the confirmation of a vertical spaceport uh, in Scotland, um, is very welcome. Uh, the real prize is to be first to market with horizontal launch capability. As the Prime Minister will know, Spaceport Cornwall is well placed to deliver this prize. But will the Prime Minister confirm that the government remains ambitious to be a, a first mover on horizontal launch and will she back space, Spaceport Cornwall's bid? Can I say to, uh, to my honourable friend that he's raised a very important issue and he is, as I would expect, uh, championing the cause of Cornwall in this, as uh, one or two other of our, my honourable friends from uh, Cornwall are also supporting him in that. Um, we have awarded grants worth £31.5 million to enable satellites to be launched from UK soil. And we've also announced a £2 million fund, subject to business case, to help boost airports' ambitions to offer uh, what he suggests the horizontal space flight. And that includes sites such as Newquay, Glasgow, Prestwick and Snowdonia. The UK space flight programme is continuing to consider these leading proposals and I'm sure we'll have heard my honourable friends uh, championing of the, uh, of the request for Cornwall. Lillian Greenwood. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My honourable friend, the member for Bassett Law, has told me about the harrowing evidence he witnessed during three weeks of hearings by the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse investigating Nottinghamshire councils. And I've also read some of the survivors' courageous testimonies. I hope that when the inquiry panel publish their recommendations next summer, the Prime Minister will accept them in full. But the survivors need help now. A suggestion that's come forward is that a small amount of money for the survivors' groups would have a disproportionate impact, providing support and encouraging others to come forward. Will she ensure that resources are made available to provide that help now? Can I say to the Honourable Lady, she's raised a very important issue, and uh, I'm pleased that I was able to set up the inquiry into child sexual abuse. As I said at the time when I did it, I think people will be shocked to know the extent to which children were being abused in this country in many different environments and, and circumstances. She's raised a particular issue in relation to Nottinghamshire. Um, and of course, when the report of the uh, independent inquiry comes forward, we will look at their recommendations very seriously. Um, and uh, I will ask the relevant uh, minister to look at the issue that she's raised about the, the uh, um, survivors groups. We have worked, we did work, I did when I was at the Home Office, work with survivors groups. It was talking to them and hearing from them that made me realise exactly how terrible, uh, how terribly badly people have been treated, the appalling crimes that have been committed and the appalling abuse that they had suffered. And that's why it's important that this independent inquiry gets to the truth. Mr Andrew Mitchell. Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. Uh, following the welcome call overnight from the American administration for the ending of the Saudi bombing campaign in Yemen, will my right honourable friend use Britain's undoubted authority at the United Nations to press for a new Security Council resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire and meaningful and inclusive negotiations to end what is the worst and most terrifying humanitarian catastrophe on the planet. Oh, can I thank my, honourable friend, my right honourable friend, who I know has been consistent in pressing on the needs of the people of, uh, of Yemen. And we certainly ban, the, uh, sorry, ban back the US's call for de-escalation in Yemen. 
In Mar- he references our role in the United Nations Security Council. And in fact, in March, we proposed and coordinated a UN Security Council presidential statement, which called on the parties to agree steps towards a ceasefire. This remains our position. But as my uh, right honourable friend, the Minister, said in the House, I believe, yesterday, a nationwide ceasefire will only have an effect on the ground if it is underpinned by a political deal between the conflict parties. And my right honourable friend, the Foreign Secretary, discussed this matter with Martin Griffiths, the UN Special Envoy, last night. They agreed that the UK will continue to encourage all parties to agree to de-escalation and to that lasting political deal which will ensure that any ceasefire will hold in the long term. In Matheson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Young women are dying because if they're aged under 25, then they can't get a cervical smear test, even if they have the symptoms relevant and even if their GP wants one. So will the Prime Minister take the easiest decision she will be asked to make this year and abolish this arbitrary age limit and in doing so save women's lives? I say to the Honourable Gentleman that I recognise the issue that he's raised. It's one that has been raised before. Of course, on issues like this, it is important that we take clinical guidance on it. But, of course, issues about the future of the NHS and how, it's operates, or how it operates are matters that the uh, NHS are themselves considering as part of their long-term plan for the future. Fiona Bruce. Would the Prime Minister welcome the acquittal this morning by Pakistan's Supreme Court of Asia The young Christian wife and mother of five who has spent over eight years in prison, mostly in solitary confinement, facing the death penalty on blasphemy charges merely for drinking water from a communal supply. And will the Prime Minister in particular commend the courage and integrity of Chief Justice Saqib Nizam for the message he has sent out regarding religious freedom for those of all faiths and none in delivering this judgment, setting Asiya free and rectifying a great injustice? Thank uh, my honourable friend. And the news out of Pakistan of the release of Asiya Bibi, I think, will be while. What, very welcome to her family and to all of those who have campaigned in Pakistan and indeed around the world for her release. Our long-standing position on the death penalty is well known. We call for its abolition globally. Chris Ruain. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, since 2010, the number of rough sleepers has risen from 1,700 to 4,700. We now have. Homeless tent encampments outside on Victoria Street. Homeless charities believe that one of the main reasons for this huge increase is the botched introduction of universal credit and a general hostile environment towards the poor. Can I ask the Prime Minister why she believes the number of rough sleepers has shot up by 268% on her watch? to the Honourable Gentleman. We recognise that we need to take action in relation to rough sleepers. We have a commitment to halve rough sleeping by 2022, to end rough sleeping by 2027. That's why we have already published a strategy to deal with this. We have put initial funding funding of £100 million into this, uh, and there are pilot projects being worked uh, uh, in various parts of the country in relation to this this issue. And I hope I hope he will, if he is interested in this issue of rough sleeping, I hope he will, I hope he will, I hope he will support the proposals that the Government has put forward that were confirmed in the Budget for increasing stamp duty on those who are purchasing properties in the UK who don't live or work in the UK, that money to go into supporting people who are rough sleeping. Tom Tugendhat. 
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Will my right honourable friend join me when she uh, goes to the Cenotaph next Sunday in paying tribute not only to our own war dead from this country, but to those three million who came from the Commonwealth to serve in the cause of freedom? I will sadly not be in Tunbridge this weekend. I will be laying a wreath in Delhi, uh, paying my own tribute, and I know on behalf of this whole House, paying tribute to those who suffered and died. Will she join me also in wearing a cardi poppy at some point, and the reason for which is the homespun cotton that remembers Gandhi's and India's contribution to the effort is a vital reminder to all of us here of our links around the world, but particularly to India. Can I I, uh, thank my honourable friend for highlighting this vital contribution that was made by soldiers from around the Commonwealth, and he has highlighted particularly those from India. And I also pay tribute to my honourable friend for his own military service. We must never forget that over 74,000 soldiers came from undivided India. and lost, lost their lives. Eleven of them won the Victoria Cross for their outstanding bravery. And he will know they played a crucial role in the war across multiple continents. I'd like to also congratulate the Royal British Legion and Lord Guardia for their efforts in recognising this contribution with the special Cardi Poppy, honouring the sacrifice of everyone who served, uh, and a century, uh, served a century ago. And I will certainly uh, be interested in wearing a Cardi poppy uh, at some stage over the period as we lead up to Armistice Day, just as I'm pleased to be wearing a ceramic poppy today. Oh, the, the Honourable Lady from the front bench opposite says she is wearing one of them. I'm very pleased to see that. And I would also like to say I'm very pleased to wear the ceramic poppy today that I see that a number of uh, uh, Honourable Members are wearing, uh, which were created by children at a school in the North West. And I St Vincent's indeed, and it is, it is very important, I think, at this centenary that we all recognise and that younger generations understand the immense sacrifice that was made for their freedom. Sherry. Thank you. Mr Speaker, what does the Prime Minister say to a local primary school who have written to me in desperation as they are struggling to cover their basic pay? The budget offered just a tenth of the money already cut and can only be spent on the little extras. The Chancellor said that schools struggling to keep teachers, save subjects or maintain hours could now buy a new whiteboard or a laptop. But what use is a whiteboard if there's no teacher to use it? I say to the Honourable Lady, as I said earlier in response to the Leader of the Opposition, we are putting one point, we were already putting £1.4 billion extra into schools uh, this year. We're putting an extra £1.2 billion into schools next year, and the £400 million announced in the budget comes on top of that £1.4 billion this year. And crucially, overall, per pupil funding is being protected in real terms. Mark Francois. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Prime Minister, you quite rightly referenced the centenary of the First World War. Wouldn't that be a very fitting time to end another burning injustice, namely the legal scapegoating of brave army veterans by others for political or financial gain? Last week, 104 of your Conservative colleagues, with members opposite, over 50 members of the other place, including four previous chiefs of the defence staff, wrote to you and asked you to join with us in defending those who defended us. I know there are only 104 of us, but nevertheless, are you with us? 
<laughs> Can I say to my honourable friend, I recognise the passion with which he has championed uh, the interests of our brave soldiers, uh, and we owe uh, so much to them across so many different areas and so many different fronts for their heroism, for their bravery, for everything that they have done to maintain our freedom. Um, he has, of course, raised particularly in the past and now this issue that was raised in Northern Ireland questions as well about the question of the legacy uh, 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 concerns that there are in relation to what happened during the Troubles and cases being taken against actually not just soldiers but police officers who also bravely defended freedom in uh, uh, Northern Ireland and acted against the terrorists. We are committed to making sure that all outstanding deaths in Northern Ireland should be investigated in a way that is fair, that is balanced and that is proportionate. The current mechanisms are not proportionate. There is a disproportionate focus on former members of the armed forces and the police. We want to see uh, these deaths being investigated in ways that are fair, balanced and, as I say, proportionate. Who's he? I have a constituent, Mr Hassan Mirza, a UK citizen who for the best part of the last decade has been unsuccessfully trying simply to renew his passport. For some of our fellow citizens, the system is clearly broken. Yep. Yeah. So can I ask the Prime Minister if her office, not the Home Secretary or the Immigration Minister, but if her office will review this case and then come back to this House and tell us if waiting 10 years simply to renew a passport is even remotely acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. Can I assure the honourable gentleman I'll make sure the case is properly looked into? Extremely grateful. Dame Caroline Spellman. Mr Speaker, I'd like to associate myself with the fine words of the Prime Minister and others on the armistice. And may I invite her to warmly welcome the choir of the Bundestag and its president, who will join our own parliament choir this evening in a commemorative concert in Westminster Hall to mark this historic occasion. Being the right honourable lady was going to offer us a little sample of what is in store. The Prime Minister. Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker, and I'm very happy to join my right honourable friend in welcoming the choir of the Bundestag and the German Vice President to this uh, concert that is taking place this evening, a very fitting way to, uh, to recognise what the uh, centenary of the armistice. Uh, as my right honourable friend may also know, the German President will be laying a wreath at the Cenotaph this year. Armistice, what Armistice gives us is an opportunity to come together to remember the immense sacrifices made in war, but also to join with our German friends to mark reconciliation and the peace that exists between our two nations today. Yeah, yeah. The concert this evening is part of that, yeah, yeah. as will the German President's presence at the Cenotaph be. Albert Owen! Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister rightly chooses North West Wales to spend her holidays, and her mountain walks inspires her to make decisions such as the 2017 general election. <laughs> Amongst the delights of North Wales is its food and farming sector, and in particular the Menai Strait seafood, which relies on direct and fast exports to the European Union, which is now free of barriers and free of tariffs. Can the Prime Minister assure the House that that sector, automotive and 
aviation can enjoy after March the same free movement underpinned by a comprehensive customs union. Can I say to the honourable gentleman that he's named a number of sectors. We have heard from those sectors their concern about frictionless trade. The proposal we have put forward uh, to the European Union would provide for that frictionless trade as part of a free trade area. Amber Rudd. Mr Speaker, BD Foods in Hastings is a successful food manufacturer and supplies uh, hotels and restaurants. They recently made a very good breakfast sauce, Mr Speaker, called the Full English Brexit, which I think will be appreciated by many of my colleagues, although it's a a little hot for me. Chief Executive John Davis has been in touch with me. He would like to invest two and a half million pounds securing jobs and further investment in the business, but he is concerned about continued access to the single market as we leave the European Union, either through the single market or the common rule. But could I ask the Prime Minister to bear in mind as she concludes those negotiations the importance of protecting investment and jobs all over the country? Can I say to my right honourable friend that I think our, our, our honourable friend, the member for Wellingborough, might well like the hot English Brexit sauce that is uh, to put on his breakfast sausages. Um, but can I also reassure my right honourable friend that the plan that we have set out is a plan that recognises the importance of protecting jobs in this country, because what we want to see is that business-friendly customs model with the freedom to strike new trade deals around the world, but also a good trade deal with the European Union, with a free trade area, that common rule book for industrial goods and agricultural products. That will be good for jobs, and we're working towards that good deal. Amy Crosby. Up to £20 billion sits in pension funds unclaimed by pensions. But that's why the pensions dashboard, which helps people make sense of their pensions, is such a good idea. So why is the government backtracking on delivering the dashboard by putting the responsibility on the pensions industry? Does the Prime Minister really believe that the industry which is responsible for all this unclaimed money in the first place is best suited to take control of helping pensioners retrieve what is rightly theirs. Well, it, it is, I agree with the Honourable Gentleman, it is important that people understand their pensions and understand what is what they are entitled to. And that's why it's, uh, the DWP is working with the pensions industry on this issue. And we haven't, aren't just working with them, we've actually put some money forward uh, as part of this project to ensure that that information is there and is available to people. Dr Julian Lewis. Will the Prime Minister give reassurance to those of us in this House and in the country who voted to leave the European Union that under no circumstances will she recommend or agree to any alteration in the exit date of the 29th of March next year. Hear, hear. I'm happy to give that reassurance. We're leaving the European Union on the 29th of March 2019. Many EU nationals live in my constituency. Does the Prime Minister think it's fair that these valued citizens who have lived here for years and contribute to their community should have to pay for the right to stay? Yeah. 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 Can I say 
speak to the honourable gentleman, as I've said to others of his uh, of his colleagues. Uh, we have protect. We are protecting EU citizens' rights. We're protecting EU citizens' rights. That was one of the key issues. One of the key issues that we put at the forefront of the discussions before the December joint report was uh, was agreed. But we've actually going further than that. I was pleased to be in Norway yesterday and to discuss with the EA and EFTA countries uh, the protection that we will give to EA and EFTA citizens uh, when we leave the European Union. Victoria Prentice. There are 50,000 amputees in Syria. Will the Prime Minister join me at the Singing for Syrians flagship concert in St Margaret's to hear parliamentarians from across this house sing like they can hear us and remind the people from Syria, the civilians, that we have not forgotten them? Can I say to my honourable friend, uh, I will look at my diary. I can't guarantee standing here that I'll be able to attend that concert, but can I commend her and all those parliamentarians who will be taking part in that concert for the work they are doing. Singing for Syria is a great uh, movement. It's a great thing that actually reminds people, not just raises money, but reminds people of the importance of remembering those civilians in Syria who, as she says, uh, we want to ensure that they know they have not been forgotten. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The only way Smolders and North Tyneside can continue to bid successfully for for foundation jacket contracts is if the national grid cables over the Tyne are moved. Will the Prime Minister commit her good officers to work with National Grid and have the cables removed by 2020 so that Smolders and other major North Tyneside and wider Tyneside manufacturers can win contracts and secure North East jobs for many years to come? Can I say to the Honourable Lady that I would be pleased to make sure that a relevant Minister in Bayes looks at the issue that she has raised? Uh, Mrs Gillian Keegan. During a recent meeting with primary school heads in Chichester, I was shocked to discover that every single one of them had been subject to violent attacks by pupils or parents. As the government launches its NHS violence reduction strategy today, will my right honourable friend consider what else we can do to protect our teachers in the valuable work that they do? Yes, I'm certainly happy to look at the issue that my honourable friend has raised. And I think there is, uh, she refers to what I assume is physical violence or attacks that teachers have been under. I myself have also seen cases where teachers have come under considerable. I would say harassment and bullying on social media as well. And so I think this is an issue that we do need to look at. Uh, Muna. Uh, Mr Speaker, the Black Cultural Archives, based in Lambeth, I'm a patron of it, is the only national heritage centre dedicated to preserving and celebrating the histories of black people in this country. However, unlike other national institutions like the National Gallery or the British Museum, which get over 40% of their funding from central government, the BCA currently receives none and is at threat of closure. She talked about the race disparity audit. Can I ask the Prime Minister to explain the differential treatment of the BCA and in this Windrush year of all years to right this wrong and provide it with the funding it desperately needs? Can I say to the Honourable Gentleman, first of all, that there is, I think, a a difference of uh, approach that is taken between those those, um, museums that are 
considered to be national museums and those that have developed in other circumstances. I recognise what the Honourable Gentleman is saying about the importance of this particular uh, organisation and this particular uh, uh, the, the, the relevance of what it is commemorating and what it is reflecting. Uh, and I will ask a DCMS Minister to look at the issue that he has raised. Andrew Jones. High streets are the centres of our communities and they have a social as well as an economic function. Uh, but the internet has changed everything. That's why I welcome the levelling of the playing field announced in the budget this week with the cut in business rates and the future high streets fund. But will local businesses in Harrogate and Knaresborough be able to work with a local council to decide how that money is spent? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can I say to my honourable friend, I'm, uh, I'm Thank you for highlighting the help that we are providing to the High Street through our future High Streets Fund. Uh, as he says, it, this will enable local areas to develop and fund plans to make their high streets and town centres fit for the future. And we'll be supporting local leadership with a High Streets Task Force, giving High Streets and Town Centres expert advice on how to adapt and thrive. And it will be possible for local businesses to work with their local authorities to develop the plans that will indeed ensure that we continue uh, to have plans for the high street that are fit for our towns and cities. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Last week, the Prime Minister inadvertently misled the House in response to my honourable friend for Bradford South over police pensions. This week, it's emerged that the National Police Chief Council have taken the unprecedented step to threaten legal action against this government over its £165 million raid on pensions. Isn't it the case that under her leadership, this government has destroyed relations with the police so considerably that they have risked public safety. No, the, the Honourable Lady is wrong in her portrayal of what has happened. First of all, I did say that this issue of pensions was one that had been known for a number of years, and indeed it has been known about for a number of years. Uh, we are committed to public service, pen, sec, service pensions that are fair to the public workers, but also fair to the taxpayer. And it's important that the costs of these public service pensions, public sector pensions, are understood and fully recognised by government. Now, the Budget has made clear that there is £4.5 billion available to support public services next year in managing increased pensions costs. And my right honourable friend, the Home Secretary, is working closely with the police to understand the impact of the pension changes and ensure we make the right funding decisions to support frontline services. Finally, Mr Philip Davis. Speaker, can the, uh, can the Prime Minister tell the House why she and her government believe it's right that government spending to be, is to be increased at a faster rate on overseas aid than for hard-pressed schools, policing and fire services in the UK. And whilst this House might be typically out of touch with public opinion on this issue, will she accept that the vast majority of the British people think that those that warped priority is crazy crackers? Can I say to my honourable friend, I continue to believe that it's right that, this, that the United Kingdom maintains its commitment to spend 0.7% of GNI on our international development. Um, I would say to my honourable friend that I would suggest that he looks at the speech that I, uh, in South Africa when I was in South Africa in August. I gave a speech which explained how we want to ensure that that international development aid is not just helping the most vulnerable people across the world, but also is helping countries to ensure that they can um, provide the economies, the good governments, the jobs that will take them out of needing that international development and that international aid in the uh, in the future. I think it is right that we continue with. Our 
our commitment to the poorest people across the world and to helping countries to ensure that they have a long-term sustainable future. Thank you.